1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And would you stand as I read God's Word? Hear the Word of the Lord. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you again have made yourself known to us, that you have not left us in our self-made darkness, but you have brought the light, the light of Christ, the light of your word, the light of your spirit now present. So would you be our guide? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and be our teacher? Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, would you speak to us today? Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I think there's something intuitive about James Allen up here uh, just a second ago. We were when we started singing, holy, 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 he immediately took his sandals off. I felt like I had a little baby Moses, you know. Uh, it's like maybe I should be doing that. I don't know. Uh, back in uh, 20, 2016, if you guys, some of you were here and you'll know uh, where this story. 2016 was a stressful year. Uh, you know, we, Sarah Beth and I have been married uh, for a year. That, this is June of 2016. and Been married a year. It's our first anniversary. There was, uh, there was some, we'll say, some rocking of the boat in the church. Uh, if you guys remember, it was, uh, it was tumultuous. And uh, for our first anniversary, we were supposed to go down to uh, Amelia Island, Florida, right? We had done, like, saved us money and before you had kids, right? Now it's like, maybe we'll go, maybe your parents will like go away for a minute and we can use their house in Charleston. Okay. Um, but just kidding. Uh, we were supposed to go down there and they messed up our reservations and this whole thing happened. And so we ended up in Charleston and uh, instead of Jackson or Amelia Island was like near Jacksonville. And uh, I had gotten sick. I had had the, had the shingles in 2016. Uh, I was so stressed. I was so stressed for a lot of different reasons, but uh, I was stressed. And so anyways, and if you remember this, my, sh- this is, anyways, my shingles got infected with MRSA, like this, the staph infection. And so we're down at the beach and we go to, go to eat and it's like 100 degrees outside. It's June in Charleston and I'm literally freezing, so cold. And so she says, we should probably go to the emergency room. So we go to the emergency room, they check me out and they say, okay, here's some medicine. They send me home. And then a couple days later, her mom, who's a nurse, comes and says, she looks at my stuff and she's like, hey, you, you probably need to go back. I've got like a, uh, I had like a, this golf ball on my arm and I had these knots on my back. It was terrible. It was really painful. I wasn't feeling well and nothing was helping. So we go to the ER and uh, the doctor 
<clears throat> a very precious gift of God that he was. Uh, he looks at my arm and it's, it's throbbing, it's painful. It's probably one of the most painful things of my life. And the dude just grabs it and starts to massage on it, looking at it, asking me questions. And he keeps telling me, hey, I know this is going to hurt a little bit. In my mind, I'm, I say to him, I wanted to say a lot of things. Uh, and I said, you do what you have to do. I'll do what I have to do. I don't need a narr- I don't. You don't need to tell me. You just do it. So he's like, I mean, and it's brutal, but it was this, it was so excruciatingly painful. Uh, but the pain was a part of the healing. The pain of that moment, right, was the beginning of healing. Uh, what they had to do is they took some samples. They admitted me into the hospital. They found out that it was MRSA and the, the, the doctor in the hospital, once I got admitted, she was like, you know, if you'd waited much longer, it could have compromised your arm, which was a sobering thing to, to hear as a 30 something year old guy. And uh, but they, you know, I had to go to surgery and they got the, the melon baller and got that stuff out of there. And, um, some of you got that. They don't really use a melon baller, I assume. Um, so what it felt like, uh, but it, the pain was the beginning of healing. And when I was, Sarah Beth was like, so what are you, what are you preaching on Sunday? And I said, I, I kind of laid my Bible open, uh, as I was making breakfast. And I said, you know, this is right here. And, and she read it and she's like, oh, that'll be fun. You know? <laughs> Liars and perjurers and adult, you know, homosexuals and all this stuff and um, and and but Paul begins as he's as he's unpacking the, the he's co- contrasting right Timothy here's your sort of ministry and then compared to the false teachers who are in Ephesus here's their sort of ministry they're they're caught up in an overattention to the law and here we should think about the Mosaic law the Old Testament law. Now, they're, they're, they're caught up in it, but they're not using it rightly. They're, the, the end of their teaching is leading to uh, speculation. It's leading into strife. It's leading into partiality within the body. It's not having the proper fruit. And sometimes when we see the Word of God abused, or particularly you see the, the law of God abused, you begin to think, well, that must, that must not be for us anymore. What do we do with the law of God? What do you do with the Ten Commandments? Are they still binding upon people and upon Christians? What do you do with the ceremonial laws about sacrifice and about the temple? Since there isn't a temple and this isn't that sermon, so we'll talk about why there's not a temple later. Uh, What do you do with the judicial or the, the civil laws? Or some of the holiness code that says you don't eat shellfish and you don't wear clothes of mixed fiber. You know, I haven't, I haven't struck out on the shellfish today um, that I know of, um, but I'm pretty sure I've got something on that's mixed fibers. Um, so what do, we, what do we do with the components of the law? Is should we take all of it and say, well, I'm, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. And so I can, I can now I live in the, the law, of, law of Christ and the law of liberty. And the, the Old Testament is just nice historical draperies in my Bible. But I can really just have my New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs and go about my way. And to, and to act like that and to live like that and to do ministry in that way uh, really says we're not actually believing what the New Testament is telling us about the Old Testament. Second Timothy, which isn't, isn't this book, but it's the book after First Timothy, Second Timothy. All right. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. You remember that part? That, 
and remember, when Paul says that to Timothy, we don't, there is no New Testament bound up in leather for us to look at or hardback or any other way. The only thing that, that could have been referencing at that moment was the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament. And Paul immediately wants to save Timothy from that error of saying the law is no good. Just because some abuse it, it doesn't mean that it's not good at all. Just because we live in the new covenant, it doesn't mean that it has no profit for us or any role in our lives today. But in fact, now we know that the law is good. Paul states his, we know this compared to they don't know. Verse 7, remember, they're desiring, the false teachers are desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They are, they're taking the law of God and they don't know what they have in their hands. They're taking the word of God and they don't understand what to do with it. And so the end of their application of it, their end of their use of it, rather than bringing healing and wholeness and growth and building to the body of Christ and to the people of God, it ends up as a tearing down. It spreads them out, brings them into fights with one another, and does not further the plan of God, the administration of God, the stewardship of God. In what, verse 3, 4? Verse 4, about the stewardship of God that is by faith. Remember how that, that Timothy is being urged not to fall into this false teaching, but to follow Paul's course. The false teaching leads away from the application of the plan of God. right? The plan of God, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. That God is bringing everything to its proper right end in Christ. He's summing up all things in Jesus says this in Colossians, that the ministry that Timothy ought to be pursuing should be one that furthers God's plan of bringing people into the family of God and seeing restoration happen in their lives by the power of the gospel. And so somehow, connecting those dots, Paul is saying the law is good for that end. The law is good for the end of God's stewardship, of His plan, that the law continues to have a role in the, in the plan of God, the stewardship of the plan of God, how God is bringing everything from creation through the fall, through redemption, to new creation. Where He's summing up everything in Jesus. The law has a role to play there, and the law has a role to play for us. Now, the law is good, but it's only good if you use it lawfully. Or one translation that says legitimately. That there's a way of using the law, and I'll define my terms in a minute. There's a way of using the law that is not legitimate, as I've kind of mentioned with the false teachers. There are some in our, even today, that want to have their sort of a, a back to Judaism movement. Where we bring the law in too many of its parts and a wrong application of its parts to, to redevelop a new, a new Old Testament, a new covenant Old Testament uh, church Ju Judaism mixture thing. It's a very confusing idea. 
But part of it is that you take a component of the law that is meant to be fulfilled in Jesus and is meant to instruct us about the nature and the work of Jesus. Rather than letting it lead us to Jesus, you try to apply it to the family of God now. An illustration of this would be binding, this is an important distinction, would be binding believers' consciences about observing Jewish feasts. Right? You, you might not think this happens, but it happens. Hey, you should, you should do Passover. You should do a Seder. Now, I'm not saying it's like somehow immoral if you want to like be and like learn about it. But I'm saying binding the conscience that we should somehow do all of the Old Testament festivals. Where all of the Old Testament festivals are, I, I, they're, they're really types that find, they're, 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 they're pictures that lead us to Jesus, that they're fulfilled in Christ. They teach us about who Christ is and how we're related to him. So when we think about now the law is good if one uses it lawfully, I'm going to give you two, two sets of three. School has started for our kids, so you get school too. Two sets of three. There's the threefold division of the law, and then there are the three uses of the law. Okay? I don't know what, that, I don't know what animal has three, but... Three, three, okay? Threefold division is where I'm going to go first. And this will save you so much. If you're, if you're trying to interact with somebody and you're saying, hey, this is wrong because God's word says it's wrong, and you use some Old Testament law to prove it, and they immediately come back to you and say, well, you, don't, you, you eat shrimp, don't you? You have cotton and lycra or spandex or whatever y'all are wearing today. Polyester blends. So you're breaking the law too in that way. The threefold division of law instructs us. It is not imposed from the outside, but it's really developed from how the law is laid out before us in the Old Testament. But there's three simple, it's a simple divisions of how the law was in the Old Testament. Uh, and this isn't, I don't have time to open up all of this, so I just want to hit it and move. So uh, there's the moral law, there's the ceremonial law, and there's the judicial or civil law. The moral law, which is best summarized for us in the Decalogue or in the Ten Commandments, the moral law is a direct picture of the moral, perfect righteousness of God. It is a mirror, and it is an enduring mirror, an enduring reflection of the character of God. Here are God's perfect standards that stand for all time for all people. And in fact, an argument could be made that it is this law in, in its parts that were inscribed upon the heart of Adam. And they remain inscribed upon the heart of every man, woman, and child who has been born of Adam since. Romans chapter 2. Secondly, there is the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law governs the worship life, the cultic worship life of the people of Israel. What are the sacrifices? What are the sacrifices for? What's the temple like? What, why is there a bronze basin and all that altar and the, the mercy seat and the cherubim? All the stuff surrounding the worship and the sacrifice and the atonement of the people of Israel. All of the ceremonial law has been summed up in Jesus, who is our perfect high priest, who is our perfect sacrifice, who makes intercession for us. So while the moral law endures, the ceremonial law points to Jesus and is summed up and fulfilled in Christ. Okay, And then there is the judicial law or the civil law. 
And this governs Israel as a nation, a geopolitical nation state. And so a lot of it is particular to the circumstances of Israel. But at the center of the judicial law is the moral law. And all I'm saying is that the judicial law of Israel is a direct application in that context of the moral law of God. Why should you stone murderers? Because the moral law of God says that you shall not, you shall not kill. Now, I'm not getting into a capital punishment. That's just an illustration. But there is a moral law kernel in the middle of every judicial law. And so while the judicial law may not be directly applicable to us, every judicial law has an inclination or a teaching moment of how to, what, what do we do with the moral law in our context. But we are not, and this is an important distinction, we can learn what to do with the law from the judicial law, but we are not a geopolitical theocratic nation state. We are the church of Jesus Christ. The sword has been entrusted to the the deacon of the state. We have a different mandate. Now, I know some of you are like, where are we right now? That's okay. Sometimes this is, you know, how do you teach a kid how to swim? This is not how you teach a kid how to swim. But sometimes this is how I learned at Boy Scout camp. Here's the end of the dock. Sometimes you sink or swim. Um, And hopefully I'm going to help you swim in a second. But there's a threefold division. And you're thinking, Jacob, you made that up. Well, I think the clearest place where you see there's at least a distinction between the moral law revealed in the Ten Commandments and the rest of the commandments of the Old Testament is that the moral law of the Ten Commandments is written by the finger of God. Remember, on the mountain, it's written by the finger of God upon the tablets. Everything else is given to Moses, who then distributes it to the people. So the moral law of God remains. So that's the first set of three. I want to be like, any questions? But we're not going to go there yet, okay? There's the moral law, ceremonial law, judicial law. Moral law remains in effect in terms of it's, it should bind our consciences and teach us how to live. But we'll talk about more uses of it in a second. The ceremonial law was about the worship life of, life of Israel and is fully fulfilled in Jesus. The ceremonial, I mean, the, the judicial law contains a kernel or a seed of the moral law while the judicial is wrapped up in the people of Israel. I mean, the judicial the elements around it, the center of it, the particularities of it are wrapped up in the people of Israel and find their fulfillment in Jesus as well. Okay. All right. You've heard it. It's going to be online. You can, I'll write all of this out in an email. If that's easier, um, you can, you can kind of maybe with some references for you. Uh, and so Paul is saying the law is good if you use it lawfully. When you take the law as it is and you begin to apply it, and he says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just or for the righteous. The law is not for the righteous, nor does the law make righteous. Important. The law is not for the righteous, and the law does not make righteous. What do I mean by that? You're only, you're made righteous. Making being made righteous is justification. And you are not made righteous by the law. That is not the function of the law. And it was never intended to be the function of the law. 
It is a, uh, is a perversion of the law of God to seek righteousness through works of the law. It has always been. The, the paradigm of justification by faith alone is already in place when Moses is born. You're thinking, where? Remember, have you read Romans 4 lately? Galatians 3. What did God say to Abraham or Abram in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6? What does God say? Abraham, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is the, para- this is the paradigm post-fall. Right. After the fall, the only way that people are right with God is by believing in God. There is no one ever since the fall. There's no one ever, actually. Adam and Eve dropped the ball, lightly said. No one ever has been justified by works of the law because the works of the law demand that you do everything the law says to a T. Full obedience all the way, all the time, without ever failing. That's the standard that God lays out for you and for me. Even today with the moral law, we look at the Ten Commandments and we, and we see what Jesus does with them in the Sermon on the Mount. And we should, be immediately, we should immediately realize that I in and of myself am not righteous according to God's standard. I'm not and you're not. I don't have to be in your business to tell you that. I'm in a little bit of your business and I can tell you that. You're in a little bit of my business and you could tell me that. No one is made righteous by obedience to the law. I, just want to, I feel like I've got to hammer that home because that's, the, we, that's how we always slip into that. We always slip into some form of legalism, some form of moralism saying, look at my obedience. And for us today, it's, 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 rare, it's, it's less that. It's not always, hey, look at my obedience, but it's look at my emotional fervor. You could go on Facebook today and you say, how many people had this great worship experience? And how do they know they had a great worship experience? They cried today in church. As that, that's some level, you've crossed a threshold and you've worshipped now that you have an emotional experience. Find me that here. No one is made righteous. By your obedience, by your emotionalism, by your intellect, you cannot make yourself righteous. And so the law is good because it is that doctor squeezing on the pus-filled, sin-infected heart and saying, you're not right in and of yourself. God, the great physician, lays his hands on you and says, you have a sickness down to the core of your being that you cannot remedy. And if you don't deal with it, if you don't let me in there, it won't just compromise an arm. It will compromise your soul. It will eat you up. And it will cast you into the depths of hell. That's where sin wants you. Understand that, dear one. Understand that. That sin, you might endure it, right? You might... It might be like a little, you, you, you flick a match on in the dark and it's just you and that little flame. And it brings you such joy in the moment. There's so much pleasure in that little sin, that little attitude, that little lust. That little bit of comparison where I'm saying, look how better I am. Look how much better I am than that person. I read my Bible today. 
I went to church. I'm going to the grocery store after this. And you're going to see all these people who didn't go to church. And you're going to say, oh, I'm so much better than them. And you have this, this little lamp of sin, this little, little fire. And what you need to know is that sin will consume. That sin left unrestrained and unchecked will always pursue its worst manifestation. Sin unrestrained and unchecked will always pursue its worst manifestation. So whatever that little fire is, when you begin coveting something, you're saying, I, I, I really, I'm worth more than this. I'm worth more money and I'm worth a bigger house. And I've worked so hard, I'm, I'm worth a boat. Now, don't get me wrong. All that's fine in and of itself. But you're looking at other people and you're saying, I'm, I'm better than them. I should have what they have. I work harder than them. I should have what they have. And that's a discontentment with where God has you in life. And that's, that's idolatry. And what you need to know is that if you continue to, to spur that, and, you, and every now and again you, you come to that little match in your soul and you blow a little bit of oxygen on it. And it's going to get bigger. And it's going to get bigger. And it's going to get bigger. And until you cannot contain it. And your covetousness will become outward in bitterness and resentment toward other people. And left unrestrained and unchecked by, the, by God, by the way. Unrestrained and unchecked. If God just gives you over to it. Then you'll, you'll start taking other people's stuff and seeking how you can take other things from other people. Sin all... That's John Owen, by the way. Not John Owen who's here with us, but John Owen, the theologian. Almost, almost as great as our John Owen. <clears throat> but sin always leads to its worst manifestation. But it's not laid down for the just. It doesn't justify, but it's for the lawless and disobedient. And you're thinking, oh good, it's for those other people. Whew. The lawless and the disobedient over there. The ungodly and the sinners over there. The unholy and profane. They live down that street. Dear ones, Romans, Romans 3 tells you that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none good. There is no one who seeks God. Just in case you're curious, you are covered, we are covered by those universals. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. You are not the exception. There's one exception. His name is Jesus. You're not him. So the law is for us, but it is the scalpel of God. It is the surgeon's tool to lay bare our infection. But the law shows us the perfect righteousness of God. It restrains, yes, it, it still operates in our in hearts and minds. It restrains, there's still a conscience. But it instructs us about God. And it indicts us before the holy God. It is the pain that is necessary for the healing. 1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is the breaking of God's law. You see God's standard, God's heart laid out in the word of God. And you should see that you have fallen short of it. You have rebelled against the law of God and broken what he has said. 
And the pro- one of the problems is, is that in our culture, our individualistic, rebellious culture, that where rebellion is celebrated. Me saying that you've broken the law of God, there's some people who are saying, you know, kind of, I'm kind of happy about that. I didn't tell, I didn't do what my parents told me to do. I didn't tell what the government told, I didn't do what the government told me to do. I didn't tell what my, I didn't do what my school told me to do. I don't, I don't, I don't do what anybody tells me to do. I'm my own boss. Right? That's the rebelliousness of our age. And dear ones, because we are raising our children like that without any respect for authority in the home, no respect for authority in the church. Why do you think at some point they're gonna, there's a switch that's going to flip and they're going to have respect for authority out there? The authority of the state and the government. I'm t- I'm not, this is not me saying that the government is without fault. I'm not, this is not that sermon. But still, they are an authority by, put over you by God. And if we don't instruct our children what to do with earthly authority, what on earth are they going to do with their heavenly authority of God? What makes us think that one day they're just going to bend the knee to Jesus? And because they have no respect to authority, then our preaching of the gospel, well, we've got to get people in, so we're going to downgrade and minimize the the reality of sin, the lordship of Christ, and that we are all accountable to Him. We're going to downplay the authority of God and say, Jesus is your best friend, which He could be. Don't get me wrong. But if you don't deal with authority well, then you're not going to deal with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords well. So, okay. So lay down for the just, the lawless, disobedient. So this is pretty much everybody. Unholy, ungodly, profane. Those who strike their fathers and mothers. And the end of verse 9 and verse 10, Paul is directly linking what he's telling Timothy about the good use of the law, how it restrains these sins and indicts these sins, it reveals these as sin, that this good use of the law lines, lines up almost directly with the second table of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. That he's taking the, those truths and he's bringing them to bear, to bear in Ephesus. So that there's a continued use of the law of God as an indictment against sin. And notice what he indicts. Those who strike their fathers and mothers. I've already talked about the, the, how our culture loves to churn up disobedience to parents. To, to, they want to dissolve the authority of the home. They want to dissolve the respect that kid, parent, children give their parents. Because if you can dissolve that bond, then you're on the verge. After, after, once you dissolve that, you dissolve the respect and the love between a husband and a wife. You're, all, you're dissolving the family. That's what the adversary would love to do. And he's having a heyday in our culture right now. So there's a, this demolition of the authority of the home. And again, authority in the home is directly linked to how do, you, how do you interact with your boss at work. There's a chain of connectivity here. Those who strike their fathers and mothers for the sexually immoral. This is the word uh, porneon. Where we get the word pornography and what are por- porn, you know. Sexual, immor- sexual immorality is an umbrella term. So while 
The Ten Commandments say don't commit adultery. Paul is saying the, the gist of what God is getting at in his moral law is that we should be sexually pure in our relationships. And that any deviation from husband, wife, marriage, sex, any deviation from that is a breaking of God's law. Like that does not live up to God's standard. Our culture is not the standard. The last 40 or 50 years is not the standard, church. Just because it's, it's like this is what we do today. You move in for a year or two before you get married. No! And I'm not trying to be overly gruff, but you need the scalpel of God's law to open up the rottenness. And to say, just because it's convenient, and just because it feels good, it is not morally applaudable. It does not jive with God, because He is the authority, and you are not. You don't have the right. But when we sever ourselves from all authority, and we sever ourselves from God, then we seek, just like Adam and Eve, to be kings and queens of our own making. We seek to be our own gods who can determine our own way. And we refuse. We refuse to our own destruction the authority of God. The authority of God revealed in His Word, but in fact the authority of God revealed in nature. It should be patently obvious that marriage is a... I need to temper my, my tone here. I'm not trying to be... It should be patent. It is patently obvious. That marriage is a man and a woman who the general principle is a man and a woman who reproduce via sexual union and have kids. Like, it's, it's patently obvious. But we are so, as a culture, we are so hell-bent, not just to turn a phrase, we are hell-bent on dissolving all remnants of the authority of God in our culture and over our bodies, we will deny what God has made and what God has said of you and so that you have men and women coming together and calling that marriage. And that's not a marriage in God's eyes. You have women and women getting together, denying what God has said in His Word and in the biology of nature. It is a direct affront on the authority of God. And as is transgenderism, where God has revealed this is who you are. You got bits and pieces that tell you who you are as a man or a woman. You got it down to your cellular level. You have these chromosomes. Now, we could talk about the, the, the exceptions to the rule, but the exceptions do not disprove the rule. They prove the rule. X, 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 Y. But in our desire to dissolve the authority of God, we are willing to dissolve components of science itself while we at the same time uphold science as the only arena of truth. We are so confused.
So it's not just the cohabitating. It's not just the adulterers. It's not just the homosexuals and the transgenders. This isn't the only arena where authority is broken down, where we, we, we seek to cast off the restraint of God. But he mentions enslavers or kidnappers. Where, does the, where is the Bible against slavery, Christian? Well, right here it says you shouldn't take people and make them forcibly your slave. Liars and perjurers. Who has always told the truth in this room? If you raise your hand, I know you're not. You already did it. <laughs> and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So, so whatever else that Paul's like, I've, I've, given, I've named these categories. But whatever else doesn't lead into sound doctrine, healthy teaching, building up people in the faith, and the furthering of the plan of God, any of that... Any of that is under the indictment of the law of God. And so if you're going to get to the good news of Jesus, you've got to wade through the bad news of God's holiness, God's goodness, revealed in His Word. Those are good. Meeting sinfully rebellious people. That's the bad news. That you are not your own authority. You are not the captain of your ship. The master of your fate. What's that? Invictus? Is that the, the poem? You have to wade through some bad news. And the, what all of this earns. What all of this deserves. What all of us earn. What all of us deserve. Is separation from God. We deserve the judgment of God. We deserve the wrath of God. And God would be perfectly holy and just to pour it out right now, snuff us off the planet. And shoot, take the planet with us. But that is not what our God has done. That is not what our God has done. That this use of the law... The law indicts us, the law inhibits sin, and the law instructs us as the regenerate. Those are your, that's the other three. The law indicts us, indicts sin, which is a major thing what's happening here. It inhibits or restrains sin. That's another thing that's happening here. And then it instructs us as to how to live as God's people. But something has to happen if we're going to make use of the law as something that instructs us. That this use of the law where it indicts our sin is in accordance with the gospel. It's in, in accordance. It, the, the law and the gospel are not at discord. They are not in a theological argument in the pages of the Bible. But it's in accordance with the gospel. Now, learn, now what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Gospel means good news. Here's all this bad news. You're a wreck. Inside, outside, you're full of the infection of sin. You're destined for hell. Bad news. The good news of the gospel is that while you were still in that, and some of you still in that this morning, while you're still there, pus-filled and hurting because of sin, Rotten to the core. And maybe right now God is taking that scalpel and he's opening it up and he's saying, let me come in and clean it up. 
That's the invitation of the gospel. It's not, hey, go home, fix it, and then come back when you're sparkly clean. No, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me with your weariness. Come to me with your brokenness. You're the one I came for. You're the one that I died for. While we were yet sinners. While we were yet infected. Ruined to the core. Dead in our sins and trespasses. While we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He died for you. Not because you're so swell of a person. But he died for you because he loves you. And he sees your predicament that you can't rescue yourself. And that the only way, the only way that we can be brought into reconciliation with this holy God is by the blood of the perfect lamb, sacrificial lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The gospel where Christ has died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he rose three days later according to the scriptures. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, I think it is, that we're justified by his death and we are saved by his life. We're made clean by the blood of Christ and we're given newness of life because he rose from the grave. And the way that can be yours today is not by your moral application of the law of God. It is by simply surrendering to him in faith, saying, Jesus, I trust you as Lord and Savior. In the accordance of the gospel of the glory. This is a whole sermon in and of itself in verse 11. So I've got a, I know, we've got meetings and stuff and things, crock pots and whatever else you got going on today. In accordance with the gospel of the glory. That the gospel, just think about how awesome God is. I'm sorry. Think about how awesome this is. That God glorifies himself. He's he's demonstrating that he is the most wonderful, important, prodigious entity that could ever be conceived of. And beyond that, he's demonstrating his glory by justifying the ungodly. Romans 3, I mean Romans 4, 2 or 3, somewhere in there. That God justifies the ungodly. And this is to his glory. He glories in this. He says, look how great I am. And what does that mean? It means that he's not a reluctant savior. That he delights to see people who are dead in sin come to life by his power. The gospel of the blessed God. Another way to say this is of the eternally happy God. You remember that passage in Hebrews where Jesus despises the shame. Why does he despise the shame? For the joy Set before him, despises the cross, walks through the shame and the humiliation of the cross, endures the beating and the slander of of Golgotha for the joy set before him. Jesus is the most happy person in the world, in the universe ever. Right hand of the God, the father celebrating because he secured his people by his death and resurrection. He's the blessed God. All praise, all glory, all honor go to the God who saves sinners like me and like you. Would you come? There's no reason. There's no reason to die sin infected far from God. Be reconciled to the God who loves you. Trust in Christ. Run to him and he can make you new. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the blessed God. We thank you for the gospel of your glory. 
and though the, the pain of, of hearing some of our sins hit on, some of the places, Lord, where the, the adversary tempts us and draws us away from you, even as Christians still, would the wounding of conviction this morning be a good grace to draw us to Jesus, to find shelter in the one who has died for us? Jesus is the friend of sinners, because that's all there are. There are sinners who have been made saints by your grace, and there are sinners who remain dead today. And I pray, Lord, that you would make them alive by the power of your spirit now. And you would take this gospel news that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Would you stir them up that they might believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord? Would you bring them alive today? Would we be a people as your children, your saved, born again church that are so gripped, so gripped by this gospel of your glory, of the blessed God, that Jesus, you would be on our lips, on our minds that we would be quick in the, in the hurt and the ruin and the despair that surrounds us in this world. Would we be a people who's quick to point to the hope of Christ? Saying, this is where I found shelter. This is where I found hope. This is where I found forgiveness. This is where I found cleansing. In Jesus, in Jesus alone. So Lord, we thank you. And we thank you that your word goes out and it will not come back void. Would you accomplish your will for your name, your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.